So how many of you know what TMZ is? How many of you know what TMZ stands for? Let's hear it. 30 mile zone. Very nice. You get the prize. I don't know what the prize is yet, but you get it. <laughs> 30 mile zone refers to the area right around the section of Los Angeles known as Hollywood, Burbank, where dreams are made and movie stars are made and sometimes destroyed. Well, TMZ started, as some of you might know, as a celebrity gossip news site on the web. There's also, as some of you might know, a television version of that same show. If you've ever seen it, this is how it unfolds. It's a newsroom-like setting. And yes, this is one of the guilty pleasures of mine, so I'm coming clean on this. The reporters, and relative to TMZ, I use that term very loosely. The reporters talk about the latest celebrity gossip, interspersed with clips of paparazzi hounding various Hollywood types, also sometimes very grainy cell phone footage of those very same celebs making fools out of themselves. Now, every once in a while, very rarely, every once in a while, TMZ commits an act of journalism. <laughs> Inadvertently, perhaps. They actually found that a bank in California that had just recently received TARP funds had spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on this big party fetting some of the big names in Hollywood. That was a little bit of a no-no. And actually, it was a very good story. And they, I have to give them credit, were ahead of anyone and everyone else on the Michael Jackson death story. I mean, I consider that hard news, but at least they got it right. That aside, TMZ is really just a tabloid. Now, this past week, I was watching it in my gym while I was working out, and the sound was off. And I said, from time to time, it is a guilty pleasure of mine, but watching it without the sound was really instructive. Because I was watching the faces of those reporters, air quotes, and what I saw was a lot of smugness and arrogance and also a kind of desperate smile. That if they could get the best dish on a house someone else was falling down, then they could get approval from the fellow people that they were sitting next to in their journalistic bullpen. If they could get the best dirt, the best dish, then they would get other people to notice them. And so in many ways, not all, but in many ways, the TMZ bullpen is not that different from the world of the new Harry Potter movie. Which is to say this, in the new Harry Potter movie, everyone is into everyone else's business and almost everyone is absolutely obsessed with their status, with where they stand, where they are in the social pecking order of Hogwarts, which is, of course, the school that probably most of you know Harry Potter and his fellow apprentice wizards attend. It is high school in the time of their lives, and it really, really shows. Now, let me pause here for a second, and let me say this. I have not read other than the occasional sentence when I pick up one of the seven Harry Potter books that my younger sister has when I visit her. I have not read any of the Harry Potter books. And that's not a point of pride with me. It's just that I haven't gotten around to it. I will someday. But even before I saw this movie, I knew exactly what Hogwarts was. 
and I knew exactly what Muggles were and what Quidditch is and what Gryffindor and Slytherin meant and who Dumbledore, Severus Snape, Draco Malfoy, and Lord Valdemort are. Those names are familiar to you? Any blank stares here? All right, well, Wikipedia is really good if that just went right over your head. If the measure of a phenomenon's reach is what you can know about it just simply by absorption, by sort of being in the air and in the media this last decade, rather than what you've learned by intention, then truly, J.K. Rowling's creation has made inroads almost everywhere. I didn't have an intention on learning all those names and all those places. They just sort of came to me. Now, this movie, like all the other movies, like all the other books, are about the big three. Harry Potter, Hermione Granger, and Ron Weasley. And they are all now very much teenagers. Which is to say this, Hermione loves Ron, but Ron is Gaga over Lavender. And Harry pines for Ginny, who's got the hots for Dean. It's like as the Hogwarts turns. Days of our Hogwarts? It's a soap opera. But if teen angst and puppy love were all this movie was about, then this movie wouldn't be worth much. We could call it perhaps high school magical instead of high school musical, and we could just turn the page on it. But the movie is more than that. And I have to say, actually, I was surprised at how much I enjoyed the movie. Because the movie opens in a world that absolutely knows and is formed by TMZ. See, the first picture we get of Harry in this movie is not him sitting live. It is a picture of him on the back page. Harry Potter has become a celebrity. Harry Potter, it says, with a picture of him with a question mark, the chosen one. And by the chosen one, they mean the one who will protect the muggle world. You all know what muggles are? Muggles are non-magic wizard types. I won't ask you to raise your hand whether you're a muggle or wizard. I'll leave that up to yourself for you to decide. But he's the chosen one, so it seems, and becoming a celebrity because he will protect the muggle world against the Dark Lord, Valdemort, and keep the world safe. Now, at least he's a celebrity for the right reasons. But the movie lets it know, and it keeps coming back to this point over and over and over again, sometimes blatant, sometimes very subtle ways, that celebrity without humility and without belief in something bigger than just fame itself, that is always dangerous and will always corrupt. The movie is really about jealousy, about wanting what is not ours, about wanting what is not yours, about the obsession with status that if it overtakes our lives, it drives that cult of celebrity, both the desire to place people up on a pedestal and then, as TMZ shows even more, the delicious desire to see them fall off that pedestal. Such a mindset can make high school and life a really cruel experience. At Hogwarts, at their school, as the school year opens, as it does in so many of the Harry Potter novels I've learned, it's all about who's hot, who's not, whose social stock is up, whose social stock is down. And it's not just among the teens, because really the whole plot revolves around a guy named Professor Slughorn. 
who is a wonderful teacher who has left Hogwarts many years ago, but it was known back then and also true in the movie that he is absolutely obsessed, absolutely obsessed. As good a teacher as he is, it's not enough for him. He is absolutely obsessed with placing himself in relationship with the best and the brightest young students and making sure that they are in his orbit and he is in their orbit. He is a master teacher of potions. And because this is a movie about teenage angst and puppy love, love potions run about as readily as water does. But if you think about what a love potion is, it is a shortcut. It is not about true love. It is not about the strength and the courage that it truly takes us to love someone else. It is about being first the object of another person's affection, and we don't necessarily have to do anything other than slip someone a mickey to make sure that we are beloved by them, that we are an object of affection rather than someone who is committed to love. So Slughorn, although he's a master potion teacher, he has this compulsion to play favorites and to be around all the cool young wizards. And you can see it throughout the movie that those wizards who aren't quite cool enough, they know it. They know that they're not invited to the right parties. They know they're not part of the right social gatherings. And I have to say, as someone who went to Hill School, the boarding school up here in Pottstown, in sort of those bad old days when it was single-sex education, I can absolutely attest at how miserable it is to have a teacher who is so concerned with being beloved by his students. There was this one teacher, he will go unnamed. He was just like five years out of college, that he had no business whatsoever teaching people who were sometimes 18 and he was just 24 25 26 he let it be known in ways subtle and in ways overt that he wanted to be one of the cool kids he couldn't let it go he couldn't let it go that maybe he was aging and so he had this obsession this compulsion compulsion to be around those who had the status now the movie gets its motivation from the fact that Professor Slughorn has to be lured back to Hogwarts by Harry because this temptation to be around the Golden Kids had got him mixed up with a younger version, a guy named Tom Riddle, who becomes the Dark Lord Valdemort, who is Harry Potter's arch nemesis. And in terms of this jealousy, this need to be in the know at the center of things, Lord Valdemort, back when he was a student, he is the archetype of the destructive and jealous person. He covets, he wants, he desires, and the story is really as old as Pandora or Icarus. He has this greedy quest to guarantee his eternal life. It starts with him and it ripples outward. This culture of coveting and wanting and desiring what may not be yours. So the school year continues and everyone at Hogwarts, even Harry, wants to be with the in crowd, wants to feel that they are favored over others. And the shadow side of this we begin to see in some of the characters' lives, that if you're not in the in crowd, it's shame. That you have perhaps done something wrong or you yourself are deficient, that you are not chosen as one of the elect. It brought me back actually to a movie I saw maybe two and a half years ago, and it was about children who have been recently diagnosed with Tourette's syndrome. Now, many of you know what Tourette's is. I think it can express itself in a whole range of involuntary behaviors. 
but very often it's known through a kind of uh, physical or verbal tick. And the cruel part of Tourette's is that it can very often begin to announce itself when kids are in their childhood or becoming teenagers at the exact time in life when people are finding it so necessary and so needful to belong, to feel that they are a part of something. And so Tourette's, because other kids can be cruel, it sets these kids out. It marks them as apart from or feeling less than. And it is very often this kind of experience of shame that drives jealousy. Jealousy is always based on the idea or the experience that someone else has something that you want that really inwardly you believe you are not worthy of and probably can't get. And so jealousy starts very often with the experience of pain, with the experience of this obsession with status that breeds resentment that can begin an injury. A couple weeks ago when we were on vacation in New England, I was at a game at Fenway Park, which as much of a Yankees fan as I am, Fenway Park is still absolutely sacred ground for me. Everything was perfect. The Red Sox even lost. <laughs> but one thing compromised this beautiful night at the ballpark on this gorgeous day in New England. We had two young women sitting in back of us, directly in back of us. And it started right after the national anthem. When one said to the other, and what became an unrelenting stream of complaints for the next two and a half to three hours, I am so much effing better than that girl who sang the national anthem. <laughs> yeah, you are. <laughs> on and on it went. And we thought at first, wow, these girls, these young women, they're probably 16. And we looked around and we saw they're about 24, 25, 26. And it went on and on. It was so obnoxious. The woman whose tickets, whose season tickets these were, was in this battle back and forth with the woman she had invited. And the woman that she had invited was truly the uber obnoxious one. It was, I'll pay you back sometime, I'll pay you back sometime, I'll pay you back sometime. Can I have some money for beer? I got to clean up the language here, but I'm not like Monica. F Monica, I'm not like her. I'm not like Monica. Everything was a critique and a complaint. Now, after two and a half hours of this, <laughs> it was obnoxious. But it also became a little sorrowful because I started to feel how awful it might be to be in her skin because whether it was someone else's boyfriend who she was plotting to steal or the budding alcoholism that she was clearly moving toward or this sense that she had to get the next big thing, the next big purchase that she wasn't sure she could afford but still had to have anyway. All of these complaints led to this picture of a person sitting in back of us where everything she wanted were only things that someone else had. And everything she had was not worth anything at all to her. Actually brought to mind for me one of our core convictions here at Wellsprings, which reads like this. We believe that a growing on a spiritual life fills our God-shaped holes and our deepest yearnings. In this part especially, 
efforts to fill these holes with materialism, unhealthy relationships, and substance abuse lead to despair and loneliness. And I could see that coming on this young woman's horizon. This grubbiness, this clutching after things and clutching after other people, it really birthed in me by the end of the night a sadness that she would clutch after other people's things and lives so much because what she possessed was so meager to her. I thought also of the tenth commandment. We don't view them as commandments in our tradition. I think this one is a really, really, really wise suggestion, though. It's actually the last two. You shall not cover your neighbor's wife or a neighbor's husband or however it applies to you. And you shall not cover the Tenth Commandment, anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now, that just makes for good boundaries and less deaths by stoning in biblical ages. <laughs> but even more, even more. This is a very psychologically, spiritually insightful commandment. Tremendous insight. Because what it sees and what it says is that when we covet, just as this young woman did so fiercely, almost with all of her being she coveted, I could see it so clearly. When we covet someone else's life, we are not living our own. Every moment that we are in a state of jealousy or resentment or covetousness is a moment and an hour and perhaps even a lifetime when we are not living out of our own selves. Hours wasted. So many hours wasted in covetousness. Now, sometimes people think, and I had this thought myself, that, well, if I'm not coveting, and maybe coveting feels like a scary, dirty word, but at least if I'm not wanting... Well, if I'm not wanting something, that that must mean I'm absolutely satisfied with my life and nothing's going to change. And the fear of unrelenting sameness is something that really can frighten us. But I want to say this. Wanting what you have is not a static reality. Life changes one way or the other. And so there is a very deep difference between aspiring and wanting to be motivated by jealousy. And I'll use this example, which is that if you know someone in your life who is very, very important to you and models for you how you might become and how you might grow and how you might flourish as a human being, yes, you could say that you aspire to be like them, but that is likeness meeting likeness. That some part of them you do not covet because you already possess it. And they are modeling for you how you might become yourself. But jealousy is very different, of course. Jealousy is that assumption that what they got, we don't. And so jealousy can very quickly become, and this drives TMZ more than anything else, it becomes that great German word, schadenfreude. Dennis Miller, back when he was still funny, and that was a long time ago. <laughs> Dennis Miller said, schadenfreude. Leave it to the Germans to invent a whole new vocabulary for psychic anguish. Schadenfreude is this, that if I can't change, at least you can change, and at least you can change for the worse. And I will take pleasure in your falling down. Schadenfreude is perverse joy. And it crowds out a true acceptance of who we are 
And this true acceptance makes for the only real possibility of true transformation and change that there is in this life. Some of you may have heard of the school of organizational thought called AI. And I'm not talking artificial intelligence. I'm talking appreciative inquiry. Is that familiar to any of you, appreciative inquiry? Appreciative inquiry starts, well, first began with an observation that organizations, religious communities, schools, individual families spend so much, we tend to spend so much of our time focusing only on our weaknesses and trying to bring those weaknesses back up to a place where they don't dog us out as much as they would before. But the problem with this mindset is that if we as a culture, as a congregation, as a society are only trained and only to think about let's solve the next problem, we're only going to see the next problem. And we're only going to see the next problem after that. And we're only going to see the next problem after that. And our lives will become about solving problems and not living out of a sense of call. It doesn't mean there aren't problems, but appreciative inquiry starts very, very differently. It says, how might we change on the basis of strength? That's what the word means. Appreciative inquiry. How might we better build who we are through recognizing what our strengths are And then saying, go and do more of it. What a different way to live rather than saying, what are our problems and how can we stop them from causing us too much chaos? I have seen where appreciative inquiry has done remarkable things in communities and in cultures that are completely shut down and completely negative and opens up the possibility of true and real change. I think appreciative inquiry applied in many ways, through spiritual practice, through regular devoted discernment in our lives. If you find yourself regularly, 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 always focusing on the negative, I would ask this question. What are your strengths? What are your strengths? And how can you do and live with more of those? It's like the other night I was watching uh, Knocked Up on Cable, that Judd Apatow movie, and I can't wait for his absolutely new, his new one to come out. I love, love, love Judd Apatow movies. But Knocked Up was on Cable the other night, and one of the characters who's not a terribly happy character, she says on Oprah, I don't know if she heard this on Oprah, so I don't blame Oprah for this, but she says on Oprah, I heard the other night that when two people get together, you're forced to point out each other's flaws, and you keep harping on them, and then the other person changes, and then they thank you for it. This is a joke in the movie because this person does not have a happy marriage at all because everything is a problem, everything is a flaw, and she keeps harping on it, and all that builds around her is resentment. See, because in her marriage and in her life and in all lives in which there is no appreciative inquiry, there is very little gratitude. It is gratitude that allows us to see what is good, that allows us to see the seeds of the possibility of our change by recognizing that capacity for change is already within us. When we are grateful, we can perceive what is good and follow it out into the rest of our lives. But of course, this brings up a question. What about the difficult stuff when it comes to wanting what we have? Disease, illness, violence, sadness, grief, mourning. All that stuff that we would not at all wish for ourselves if we had the opportunity to write and solely author the story of our lives. 
Well, this idea of not wishing for the life that you want, but wanting the life that you have. I first learned about it from the best teacher I've had in the ministry, the Reverend Dr. Forrest Church. And he writes about it in his most recent book called Love and Death, which is the story of his battle with cancer, which they thought he had beaten, and now has become a terminal form of cancer. Forrest writes directly about this experience, about truly wanting the life we have. Did I want cancer? He asks. Of course not. But to obsess on the bad things that befall us always, always just squeezes out the appreciation for the good. The time that we waste on wishful thinking or regret or resentment distracts from the time we might devote to being grateful for all that is ours here and now to savor and to embrace. When I was sick, I remembered to want nothing more than the caring affection of those who loved me. Wanting what I had, my prayers were answered. This kind of way of looking at life goes beyond the simplicity of that either-or thinking, of saying, if this didn't happen to me, and if that didn't happen to me, and if that didn't happen to me, then I could live a life that I might want. But we all have suffering. We all have sorrow. And if we're going to take all of that out pretty soon, we will not be recognizable to each other or recognizable even to ourselves. It is the kind of magical thinking that says, if I could just take all of the bad parts, then I'd be happy. It's the kind of magical thinking that isn't at all like Harry Potter. It's not benign. It's not helpful because it makes us post a vacancy sign on our lives and want to abdicate and move away from the truth of who we are. Golf, I think, is very instructive here. And I'm a really, really, really crappy golfer. So I have to face this a lot. Play it where it lays, even if it's in the weeds, where I often end up. Play it where it lays. Live your life where you are. And from there, you can begin to find a way forward. From there, you can begin to find what they find in Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, which is that courage and honesty are always the fruits and the ways of wanting the life that you have. It is what allows Professor Slughorn finally to dredge up those hidden memories of what he had inadvertently shared and how he had helped the career of Lord Valdemort back when he was a child. Courage allows him to dredge up that painful stuff so that Harry and Hermione and Ron and Dumbledore can save Hogwarts. He finally wants what he has and can face with honesty who he is. So I thought what I'd leave you with today is a wonderful piece that a friend of mine who's a reporter for the Boston Globe wrote just this past week. It is a profile of Bernice Madigan, who, in a word we'll start hearing more and more and more in the coming years, is a super centenarian. That means she is well past just 100 and a day. She is 110 years old and is the oldest resident in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Before we start the clip, 
I want to let you know it runs for about three and a half minutes and go to boston.com and just enter in 110 year old woman because there's only one of those on the site if you want to see the whole video. But I want to share with you right now just a beautiful, beautiful example of living a life of wanting what you have. What do you want for your birthday? I want what I got. I'm happy with what I have. Now, perhaps you could say that's easier for a 110-year-old to say that than it is for you or for we, whatever age we're at. But I got to believe that one of the secrets to the kind of longevity that Bernice Madigan has is exactly that she has lived this life all along with this attitude. What do you want for your birthday? I want what I got. Ultimately, this is the perfect kind of magical thinking. It is the perfect kind of magical thinking because to want what you have means that you are living in a spirit of true abundance. Not defining yourself in the deficit and not defining yourself by who you are not and what you do not possess, but rather, instead of viewing your life scarcely, you can look upon who you are and say, I want what I got, and it's all right here. Amen. May you live in blessing. Let's pray together. O divine abundance, we ask that our hearts, our minds, our spirits would be open to wanting what we have, recognizing that yes, things will change, and yes, we will grow, but that we might recognize with each step that each step has value, and each step is the step in the direction of our full flourishing in this life. May we be taught and may we be led so that we can model for others the ways of true satisfaction, not just momentary pleasure in this life, but the ways of true and deep satisfaction and joy so that we might know that blessing is not just a word, but the reality that visits and graces our days. May it be so and amen.